the ones that actually have a system in place to follow up for weeks or even months for the ones that aren't super motivated right away are the ones that are getting more deals. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's best ever guests as they share it with you. It's the best ever advice with none of the fluff. Let's go. Heard of crowdfunding and still curious about how you can benefit from it? Well, we've got a step-by-step guide put together just for you by the best ever team and patch of land, the industry's leading crowdfunding experts. The best crowdfunding crash course ever, episodes 152, 159, 166, and 173 will provide you all you need to know to get started and begin benefiting immediately. Whether it's getting access to funds for your project or passively investing in other people's deals. The time is now to get started with Patch of Land. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever to grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Hello, best ever listeners. How's it going? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and I'm here with today's guest, Danny Johnson. Hi, Danny. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Hello, uh, best ever listeners. Well, you're welcome for having you on. And hello back. I'm channeling the best ever listeners, and they're waving hi to you. And they are excited to hear what you've got in store for them. Danny is inexperienced. I mean, to say experienced doesn't quite do you justice. Danny is the man when it comes to flipping homes. He has flipped hundreds of homes over the last 11 years. He's been flipping for 11 years in San Antonio, Texas. Go Spurs. He is writing all about his flipping experiences on his website, flippingjunkie.com. He's a best-selling author of, and you're going to notice that the consistent theme here, Flipping Houses Exposed, 34 Weeks in the Life of a Successful House Flipper. And he's got some uh, another business where he's got investor websites. That's leadpropeller.com and non-real estate related, but super interesting. And this kind of gives us some insight into his methodical personality. He is a pilot as well. So Danny, with that being said, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. Yeah. So, so based on everything you said, everybody can basically tell that I'm I'm pretty lazy. Uh, I don't really like to <laughs> like to do much. But no. But seriously, I really enjoy flipping houses, and uh, and my background is actually in software. So, so I went to school, went to college, got a degree in in computer science, and was a software developer. And uh, you know, and and I was doing that, and I was in the office every day, and. I didn't really, I found that I just didn't like being in an office all the time, not going anywhere, doing anything. And actually my father back then started flipping houses and I got to see all the fun he was having. He was driving around, you know, talking about, you know, this deal, that deal, looking at this house, all this kind of stuff. And he was, you know, going around all day doing fun stuff. And I said, man, I'd I'd really like to do that. And so I started doing that part time after working on the weekends. And, uh, you know, you would say, well, you know, you're busy after working all day, working full time job and stuff like that. But it never it felt like work. It was. I was so excited about it, and uh, so I started doing that part time for a while. And and you had mentioned, and I think I had told you it had been eleven years. I always lose track. I think maybe it's been twelve now. Time flies so fast. But you know, basically, we spent my wife and I spent three years. I think it was uh, part time in the business, and then finally went full time. 
And, you know, it was the best decision ever. I was basically at the point where I was losing money by not being full-time flipping houses. So, and then, you know, after several years of doing that for a long time and starting a blog at flippingjunkie.com, I ended up doing more software for real estate investors. So, it, you know, I'm able to now realize both of, of my passions, you know, with uh, software development and flipping houses. And we still flip houses. I went and actually looked at one uh, yesterday with my wife and we'll be making an offer on that today. So we're still actively flipping and uh, we've got the other businesses also. Let's get inside the mindset of an experienced house flipper. You've arrived at a property. What do you do? This is in the acquisition stage where you're trying to determine if you want to purchase it or not. All right. Basically, I just, you know, when I get there, the first thing is to talk to the sellers. And basically, I do mostly motivated seller marketing. So I'm, I'm dealing with directly with homeowners. I'm not, I usually don't spend a lot of time going after listed properties. And so the first thing is, you know, I introduce myself, you know, to the, the homeowners and we talk and chit chat just for a little bit. And we start to look at the house and walk around the house. And, you know, really what I do, I don't bring a pad of paper or a big long checklist and all this kind of stuff and walk through the house and tear it apart or anything like that. I'm just casually talking to the sellers and looking at what everything needs to be done and sort of taking like a mental mental notes of, of what I would do. And if there's any kind of like question marks, you know, like something where there's a weird layout or maybe there's foundation problems or stuff like that, you know, I'll, I'll take mental note of those and be thinking through what I might do to correct those. And I'm usually able, after walking around the house with the sellers for about 15 minutes, I'm able to pretty much be able to work out what the repairs are going to cost. So at that point, then I tell them, I'm going to go out to my mobile office, which is my car out front. And I sit there and then I write out the list of all the things I need to do to the house. And these are general, like I don't measure out like baseboard needed or anything like that. Uh, most of the time, I don't even count doors. So I'm, I'm basically, you know, writing out the big things like, you know, does the roof need to be replaced? Does the inside and outside need to be painted? Is there a lot of sheetrock repairs? Uh, what flooring, how much flooring is needed? You know, the kitchen, does that need to be completely redone? What items in the kitchen need to be done? The cabinets, the countertops, can we refinish the countertops? You know, appliances. And then the bathrooms, I look at, okay, do they need to be gutted? Do I need to put a tub and, and tiles around and all that kind of stuff? And typically the answer is yes for, for a lot of these things. And, you know, my numbers are never exact, but I don't care how good of an investor you are, you're never going to get exact numbers anyway. And so as long as I am able to be conservative and get it a little bit more on the higher end, you know, I write down these big items and then I tally them up and add them up until I get my, you know, estimate for the repairs on the house. And then from there I can you know, do my deal analysis. And typically I'm buying at 70% of what the resale value is after the house is fixed up. So 30% uh, or 70% of ARV. So if the house will resell for easy numbers here, $100,000, you know, I want to be into it for no more than 70,000 minus cost repairs. So if I walk through the house and it's 20,000 repairs, then I don't want to pay anything more than 50. So I'll probably offer them 45 right there on the spot. And uh, one thing that I do that I, I see a lot of other investors don't do, and it's really a, you know, a great tip, and I heard it a long time ago and I've been using it, but, but to have a credibility kit, like even just like a, a trifold brochure or something that has some testimonials from other people uh, that you've bought houses from goes a long way. So I have one of those and I give that to them with my offer. And uh, most, most sellers won't you know, accept an offer right there on the spot. So when you leave them something there, it's something for them to look at and uh, associate with you, especially if you have your picture on it and some information, testimonials. 
And, you know, most of the time they've got other investors coming as well. You know, there's so many investors nowadays, you know, they're obviously they're going to have three, four or five people coming out to make an offer on the house most of the time. And most will just give them a business card. So if they have a stack of business cards, they can't decipher who was who. You know, they'll put a face with a name a lot of times, and it's hard to remember. And if you're the only person that dropped off something that had testimonials and more information about your process, along with pictures of you and your family, it's going to go a long way. Even if your offer isn't the higher one, I found, you know, sometimes they'll they'll go with you because they liked you more. And so it, it just goes a long way. And you really need to believe that. Some people won't, you know, think it's all about numbers, and it's not most of the time. Oh, I love that credibility kit. That's something I have not heard of before. What What is it? I mean, you said it's testimonials, more information, but what is it a brochure? Is it a piece of paper? Um, is it something else? Yeah, I actually use a trifold brochure. So I had, you know, I, it's been so long since I had it created, but I, I hired uh, a designer online to go ahead and design it. And I said what content I wanted in it and basically just the process, some testimonials, and the benefits of selling to us. And then it's got a picture of myself and my family. And then the whole Danny Buys Houses thing, which is my website. And and so and that's what it is. And it's got images on it, you know, of a happy family with the the for sale sign with the sold across and all that kind of stuff. So they can just take a look at that and, and find out, you know, some more. And then just remember that that was me because my picture's on it. And, you know, I have a spot on the back of it where I write the offer. So my offer is tied to that uh, trifle brochure. Typically, how long does it take for them to get back to you if they want to pursue it? And is there any negotiating involved where they say, well, I got, you know, 10 business cards? Yeah. And so that just goes in with the negotiating. It depends on how motivated they are. I've I've had them sometimes where they will say that, you know, that's close enough or, you know, I need a little bit more and then you can negotiate right there on the spot. Most of the time they're going to, you know, it, it's a, a couple day process. Uh, typically, if they have more people scheduled, it's you know either the next day or the second day that they're going to get back with you. But I don't typically wait to hear back from them. I, I am calling them you know the next day, depending on how motivated they were. If they were really motivated, if they had a lot of reasons to be motivated, you know, as far as like needing the money for something or you know just had a lot of reason to get the the thing sold quickly, I'll, I'll definitely call them either later that afternoon or first thing in the morning. And just keep in touch with them regularly just so that I'm top of mind with them. And uh, when you have more competition, that's that's really what it's about. And so if there's not a whole lot of motivation and they're, they're sort of like saying things like, well, I might list it. You know, I'm not sure. I just wanted to see what I can get from an investor first. You know, then I'm not calling them that quickly after I make the offer. But I do keep in touch with them. And and, uh, and that's very important these days with the the level of competition is uh, and that that was sort of my my best real estate investing advice ever for the you know best ever listeners here is is the importance of follow up these days because there's so many investors now I mean you have everybody's teaching how to to flip houses and so you have so many people out there wanting to flip houses and starting to flip houses and it's not to say that it's you know saturated or anything but there's just you know, a lot more chance of when you go to look at a house, there's going to be other people that are going to be coming to make an offer as well. And I've found that, you know, follow-up is where it's at to get the deals because most investors won't follow up. You know, they make the offer and if the people call them back, you know, great, they'll talk to them trying to negotiate. And maybe some half of them will, will call them back a couple of days later and find out if if they've thought about it. But the ones that actually have a system in place to follow up for weeks or even months for the ones that aren't super motivated right away are the ones that are getting more deals. And by the way, I've got like music and everything for whenever I ask you what the best real estate investing advice ever is. So I have confidence 
in your okay. skills to come up with additional advice on top of oh, that. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> because we got to have like some climax for like, you know, some build up on it. So I've got to ask you that question. So, well, but before I ask you that question and before you either add on to it or, or create something new on the spot, I want to talk about your, your previous best advice ever. And that is on the follow ups. And you had mentioned follow ups are critical. Once you follow up, how often do you follow up after the first follow up? Like, what's your your schedule? Do you have a certain science to it? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a little bit of science, but it's more you know subjective. I mean, it's more of you know considering the level of motivation and where the people are at. If it's like they may need to make a decision quickly, that timeline of, of follow up is going to be condensed into a real short period of time, a couple of days, and then as that that sense of motivation and you know gets lowered then that timeline for follow-up increases to where it's maybe two two weeks for the typical motivated seller. And then after you call and follow up, you sort of you know look at where you are with how motivated they are. So time will motivate everybody even more. And typically you're going to start, you know, either you call them back after two weeks and they say, well, you know, I've decided to probably, you know, list it. And so their, their motivation to sell to an investor is not really high still. So, you know, at that point, since I had set two weeks from when I first made my offer, I'll probably put, you know, three weeks or a month and then call and follow up and say, hey, how's it going? Did you list it? And, uh, you know, if they did, then, you know, they're probably waiting around for some offers and things. And, and uh, if they didn't say they're still considering your offer, then you probably want to give it a couple months before you call them again. Because if it doesn't sell while it's listed and they don't get any offers, you want to be top of mind with them so that whenever they say, hey, you know, it's not selling, nobody wants this thing, maybe I should call. And then your name is going to pop up in their head because you've been the one contacting them. So it's really based on their level of motivation. And when you follow up, where that motivation is. is it increasing or is it decreasing? And that so if it's decreasing, they're they're not so motivated, you put the length of time before the next follow up to be longer. How do you structure your deals with them? Is it all cash or are there other ways that you do it? I do it all cash and that's basically the only thing that I, I will do. And why is that? Is it simple? <laughs> I don't like, you know, some some people pitch using other strategies because you're able to offer more. Uh, well, they say that you can offer more because of the way you structure it and maybe the people owe more. So you do these fancy techniques and do wrap lease options or whatever, you know, and, and I never liked any of that because the fact of the matter is like there's so much equity in the house and, you know, I don't want to tie my profit into like having to sell it for more than it's worth, you know, by offering special financing or something else. And so I want to get it as cheap as I can so that I can do whatever I want with it. So if I do sell it with one of those strategies, I'm going to make even more. But if I don't, I'm still going to make what I want to make on all the deals. And it's, it's you know, a lot of the strategies as well, you know, and the other reason why I do that is because a lot right. of those strategies, they sound great when you hear them and people tell you about them. But in real life, there's other factors involved. You know, when you involve people in something, things change. It's not so easy. It's not cut and dry numbers on a piece of paper. Uh, you know, you have tenants tear up a house and then, you know, and then they don't leave the house and you've got to evict them. And, you know, there's all these costs that weren't told to you when you heard about this awesome strategy to be able to buy houses at, and pay more for them. So, In my hypothetical world, they have agreed to your sales price and now you have closed. You're at the closing table. What do you do now? Okay, so I've clo- I've already bought the house? You've just closed, yep. As far as getting the team in place and all that stuff. 
All right. So at that point, you know, we've got a lockbox on it and I'll try if the house is vacant whenever we agree to an offer uh, to agree for a purchase price. I'll try to get a lockbox put on it at that point so I can have contractors come in even before closing and get things prepared to, to be started as soon as we close. But if they were living in there or they didn't want to do that, allow us to put a lockbox with a key on there to get in. Then after closing, we'll then meet up with the contractor over there and go through the entire scope of work which includes everything that we want done spelled out exactly the way we want it with the exact materials and SKU numbers uh, for the job so that there's nothing left for them to have to decide and make a poor choice on. And so they have a, a scope of work that I print out and give to them. So we both are on the same page. We have the exact same scope of work and material specs. And then they'll give me a bid for the job, including materials, because I, I started where I would go and get materials and things like that. But that's a huge time kill and so I now just have the contractor do everything. So I've got a general contractor that basically bids out the job, including labor and materials. And then they handle hiring any subs that they need to hire. And uh, so once they, we agree on the price for the job, then they get started. And uh, I've got uh, somebody on my team that goes out and checks on the rehabs and handles all that for me. Are they, when they give you the bid, are they separating out labor and materials? No, it's it's just combined. They just give me a number for the whole job. And how much are you finding uh, that they are paying on an hourly basis to their team members? You know, I don't know. Whenever I would calculate myself, you know, what a job should cost and try to imagine what it takes to do each of the tasks that need to be done, you know, I try to determine what it's going to cost for somebody at between 20 and $30 an hour. And you're giving them the exact materials and SKU numbers. So you're telling them exactly what to purchase? Right. And that's for things like light fixtures, faucets, you know, those things where there's a choice. I mean, when it's like lumber and stuff like that, that's really up to them. I'm not going to tell them which two by four to buy. But everything that, you know, where you don't want these brass fixtures in the house, you know, like cheap builder grade, you know, brass light fixtures, you know, things like that. We'll go, we'll go to Home Depot and get the SKUs. And typically, we, we do the same ones at each property, so we already have that list of what those SKU numbers are and what the cost of those fixtures are. And that's all provided to them when they're giving us the bid for the job so that they know also to include all that cost. And what does a bid like that look like for a deal or for a project? Is it itemized out? I know you said it's not itemized between labor and materials, but how does it look? How do they structure it? It was just a number. You know, they call and say, Danny, I can do that job for X amount. If it's X amount, but how do you go back and verify, okay, but does that include all the stuff we talked about? Right, because we had to, I have the scope of work that I printed out and gave to them. And so they're bidding on, on that scope of work, which spells out everything that's got to be done. And if there's anything you know, that, that is required by one of those items that's maybe not spelled out, it's understood that that's supposed to be cost, uh, you know, a part of the cost. So that should be turnkey for the house. Now, if there's something that you know, they open up a wall and there's some kind of problem that's not foreseen, you know, at that point, they've got to call me and we'll work out what I'm going to pay extra for that before they do the work on it. Do you have a sample scope of work that you could share with the best ever listeners in the show notes? Sure. I think that would be really helpful just to see what it looks like, you know, how the, the methodical nature that you have with one of these deals. And then also, if you could just write out, write on it, what that quote was from the contractor, just so we can see, okay, here's a a sample scope of work. And here's the price that was estimated for it. That'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. All right, my friend. Now we're going to ask you, 
what is your best real estate investing advice ever? All right. The best real estate investing advice ever is to be prepared. And what that means is whenever you have a call for a property, you've got a a property that you're going to see, you need to be prepared to be able to make an offer on the spot. So what that means is if you have a call from a motivated seller and they, they tell you, you know, I just need to sell this house yesterday and, you know, it's got this problem, this problem, all this kind of stuff. You set an appointment right then and there. Now, I don't know if, if you know, so say a seller calls me and they say, I've got this house, I need to sell it now. And they tell me it's a three bedroom, two bath and blah, blah, blah. They owe this amount. Uh, they're asking and hoping to get this amount for it. I don't know if that's a deal or not right during that conversation, but I'm still going to set up an appointment to go and see it. And the reason is I don't want them calling a bunch more investors. Now, typically, when I pick up the phone and answer these calls, they'll tell me you're the first person that picked up their phone. So that's number one. You're always picking up your phone when they call you, and you're having your marketing have your number on it so they actually rings your phone. And then so I'll set that appointment. So right after I get off the phone, I've got an appointment set. They're, they're likely feeling like, oh, okay, I've taken care of what I set out to do and getting somebody to come over here and make me an offer they might or might not call some more people. And if they do call more people, you know, it's probably not going to be as many as if you didn't you know, set an appointment up and just told them you would get back to them. They're still left feeling like they haven't really done anything because they don't have any set appointments or anything. So you set that appointment and then I get off of the phone. Then I'll do my research and I'll say, okay, let me find out what this thing is going to be worth and if there's any possibility to buy this. Because I buy at 70% of value, I can look at what the resale value is going to be by checking comps. And so if the house would be worth 200000 you know, I want to get it for 140 minus repairs. So if they have, you know, where they're owing 180000 you know, it's likely that I'm not going to be able to buy that because that's not even including repairs, you know, at the 140. And so we're already $40,000 off and likely going to be 60000 or more off And so I'll call them back and say, I'm sorry, you know, it looks like it's not going to work out. You know, I need to cancel the appointment. But a lot of times, you know, there is room. And so the the appointment's already set and hopefully that'll cut down on some of the competition. And then I'll go to the appointment whenever, when I set it for as soon as possible. You know, whenever I used to have a lot of deals coming in and I was getting pretty busy, I would be a little bit lazy and say, okay, well, you know, let's set up an appointment. How about, uh, you know, two days from now at two o'clock in the afternoon? Well, it turned out that the really motivated ones would call me back the next day and say it's already sold. Forget about the appointment. So you don't want to do that. You need to set it as soon as possible. You know, if you've got something you'd like to do, go see a movie or something, cancel it, go and see the house. You know, it only takes X amount of deals to have make a lot of money for the year and you don't want to lose any of them. So if you set the appointment during the first call, you're going to cut down on your competition. Then when you get there, you've already got your numbers worked out. So all you need to determine is what the estimated repair cost is going to be for you to make your offer. And if you can make your offer in person, it's best because, you know, people have an easier time to tell people no or I'm going to think about it when they're talking over the phone. But if they're face-to-face, you know, it's a little bit more likely they're going to give it some serious thought. And, you know, if they're going to sell right away and they're decided they're going to sell right away, sometimes they will take that first offer that sounds decent, even if they have other people scheduled to come out later in the same day or the next day, you know, like I said, I've been on the other side of that where they called me and said it's already sold. And that's what happened. Somebody was prepared. They got there before I did. They made an offer and they got the deal. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. Okay. Well, first, a quick word from our best ever partners. 
crowdfunding. You've heard about it, and now it's time to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, is a leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Have a fire damage property or an insurance claim to settle? You could be missing out on thousands. Call FireDamagePropertyAZ.com and they'll give you options insurance companies don't want you to know about. Call 602-753-8289. Ask for Elijah, the Fire Damage King. Danny, what's the best ever book you've read? Okay, the best ever book I've read. Right now, I would say that that's The One Thing. Uh, That's by Gary Keller. Right, awesome book. And Jay Papazon. Yeah, Jay was a guest on the show, and he talked about that. So definitely, best ever listeners, go check that out. Just Google my name, his name, J-A-Y-P-A-P-A-S-A-N, and you'll get to hear that episode. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learned from it. Okay, the best ever personal growth experience is basically whenever I got started in the flipping houses business, uh, and that's you know just starting because... And I say just starting because a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm getting started learning how to flip houses. Well, they're getting started learning and you need to get started taking action. So instead of figuring out every possible outcome of any situation you might encounter and being ready for it because you never will, you need to just figure out what's the first step and then take action and find out what you need to do after that. And so, you know, people get so overwhelmed because they're like, well, I don't know. I mean, if if I do marketing to get motivated sellers to call me, what am I going to do when they call? And it's like, well, why are you even worrying about it? You're not doing any marketing. You're not going to get any calls anyway. So, you know, do a little bit of research and just have a basic idea of what you're going to ask them about the house. And then do that and try to get some calls in because you're going to learn and remember it much better when you're doing it. And somebody calls you and you say, oh, man, I, you know, and you hang up the phone after talking with them and really fumbling it. And you are going to say, "Okay, I need to find out. Like, I should have asked them this. Well, next time, guess what? You're going to remember you should have asked that and you're going to ask it like when any other people call you. And so you you basically take it step by step. And, you know, I think the people that really do make it are the people that just charge out there. Maybe it's not the smartest thing sometimes. And I'm not saying go out there and just like make a, a ridiculous bid on a house and buy it and then figure out what to do. You definitely need to have a set, you know, process for what you're going to pay for a house and things like that. But you need to get out there and start taking the first steps instead of worrying about every possibility after that until you get to that part and I think having a mentor is definitely you know needed in this business when when you're taking risk like this because we're all taking risk but the the thing is the experienced investors aren't taking as much risk as the inexperienced best ever success habit you practice focusing on what's important to do right now best ever success habit you practice it was my first deal best ever deal you've done $50,000 wholesale deal best ever project you're most excited about right now uh, my software that I've been working on to automate a lot of the processes house flippers do. Best ever way you like to give back? Uh, my blog at flippingjunkie.com and the book uh, 34 Flipping Houses Exposed. Best ever quote? There's only one success to be able to spend your life in your own way. What's the biggest mistake What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Uh, being too quick to hire contractors has always been the biggest mistake. And lastly... Where is the best ever place to reach you? My blog, flippingjunkie.com, and also uh, leadpropeller.com, which are my real estate investing websites that I offer, and then also at reimobile.com, which is the 
platform, the cloud-based platform for real estate investors. Danny, this has been a wonderfully informative conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your best ever advice with the best ever listeners. And I love how you talked about your process for when you go in, it takes 15 minutes, you're writing things down, you're having casual conversations with the seller, and you're looking at the big items and then you're able to go to your remote office which is your car parked right in front of their house and put down all the information that you just acquired and come back to them on the spot with an offer you'd mentioned a couple times that it making an offer in person is best because they're more likely to give it serious thought versus if you did it over the phone I love the credibility kit that you talked about where it has testimonials it definitely makes you stand out over the others that are coming to visit the seller, working with motivated sellers, the people who are saying, I might list it, I'm not sure, not so much. It's really the people who are wanting to sell now. They have a certain situation they're looking to have a solution for. The follow-ups are critical, as you mentioned, and going through in your methodical nature, and, and thank goodness, because you're a pilot, thank goodness you're methodical, the methodical nature that you have with the general contractor and giving them the exact materials and the SKU numbers for different light fixtures, faucets, that type of stuff. And then, this, you know, scoping out the work and the materials. So, and you'll email me that document and then I'll go ahead and put that up with the link for the best ever listeners to download in the show notes page so they can check that out. So go download that document, go check out Danny's website, flippingjunkie.com check out leadpropeller.com and go read his book, Flipping Houses Exposed, 34 Weeks in the Life of a Successful House Flipper. Danny, thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to mention to the best ever listeners before we sign off? No, just thanks for listening and thanks for having me on, Joe. Thank you, my friend. Talk to you later. All right. Have a good day. Hey, you, best ever listener. Do you want more? Then go to joefairless.com where you'll get tons of free videos, templates, and content to help you get deals done. And remember to subscribe to the best ever show in iTunes so you can keep getting your daily dose of the best real estate investing advice ever.